Hi everyone. Today we are going to talk about a question I get a lot around September, October, and that is um, the option of pursuing boutique firms versus, you know, going after the major consulting firms. And when I say boutique firms, yeah, I'm referring to smaller, uh, much smaller firms that are led by ex-partners from McKinsey, BCG, and Bain. You know, usually anywhere from 10 to 30 people working in specific or dedicated parts of the world or in specific or dedicated sectors. And I do have some very strong views on this because, you know, when I left the firm, I ran one of the larger boutiques. Um, it was an um, energy consulting firm, mostly doing work in Latin America and Central Asia. And when I started, you know, we had something like, I think, 150 people. And by the time I left, when it when the firm got acquired by Fortune 500 company, we had close to 250 people, I think. And, you know, so I have a very intimate understanding of the challenges that boutique firms face and some of the trade-offs you are making when you consider them. And, and a lot of the stuff I'm going to tell you today is not stuff you're going to find in forums and blogs and so on because you actually would have to have, you know, been a partner at McKinsey or BCG and then have led not just worked, but led a boutique organization to understand some of the trade-offs you're making. And I want you to keep this in the back of your head when you're considering boutiques because, you know, there are pros and there are cons. And in my opinion, there are more cons than pros, yeah. Especially if the alternative is to join, you know, McKinsey or BCG or Bain. So let's start at the beginning, right? I think that at, at, the, at the broadest level, when someone tells me that they they left McKinsey or BCG to start a boutique firm because they wanted to give a client more focused attention or whatever excuse they're coming up with. At the back of my head, I'm always thinking, but why do you think a smaller version of McKinsey can serve a client better than a larger version of McKinsey? Explain that concept to me. Why do you think your little boutique, which obviously does not have the enormous resources that McKinsey doesn't have the ability to pull on, you know, these global experts, the benchmarking systems and so on, why would you be able to serve that client better? And to be honest, there's no right answer. There's no answer to that. The reality is that when most companies start up a boutique, you know, when most partners start up a boutique, they usually do so because they're tired of working at McKinsey. They've usually had a falling out with the leadership. They don't want to work as long hours, but they want to sort of coast on the name. And that's the reality. There is no justifiable reason for starting a smaller version of McKinsey or BCG unless you want to serve clients that McKinsey and BCG are not serving. Now, you know, I've heard that excuse as well. And my my gut feel response to that is maybe there's a reason McKinsey and BCG are not serving them. So so you know, there's nothing wrong with serving smaller clients. I think that's great. They need help as well. But then you are not, I'm, uh, you're not another version of McKinsey and BCG. You are basically an organization serving very small enterprises, and small enterprises have very different needs. They're not as sophisticated as large organizations. You know, they have very basic needs that they want to to have served. So. When you're making a trade-off between McKinsey and BCG, understand that I don't see a justifiable reason for boutiques. I've led a boutique, a very large boutique, but even then, there's a reason that I sold that out because it doesn't make any sense to, to continue running it. It, it, it. I couldn't see the justification. Um, there was no scalability and so on, which I'll talk to you in a few minutes. So that's the first thing to consider, right? 
the other one is understand what you hope to get by joining a boutique. I mean, if you want to learn how to tackle problems, um, b fundamental business problems at a fundamental level, boutiques are not going to give you that. I can tell you that right now. The way boutiques work is, and I'll talk about this in more detail, is that because of their burn rate and their small size, they, they cannot absorb shocks. So they have a very high tendency to bring in people with consulting experience so they can deploy them immediately. A boutique firm cannot absorb the cost of training someone for six to nine months. It's pretty hard to do that, right? You know, and partners don't want to do it, you know. Once you've left McKinsey and BCG, there's no longer the peer pressure amongst the other partners of maintaining those very high standards. So what happens if there's no, you know, if there's no peer accountability system, well, you kind of, the standards just keep on dropping. So if you're aiming to learn how to analyze things at a fundamental level, I can assure you you're not going to get it at a boutique. It doesn't matter which partner is running that. Even if, you know, Dominic Barton retired after he runs McKinsey and starts his own boutique firm, I'm not going to recommend people to go work for him because the standards change almost immediately. The model changes, the work ethic changes, and it, it's a very, very big difference, right? Now, what is the business model of a boutique firm? Well, I can give you the unofficial version. The business model of a boutique firm is that it is a retirement home for ex-partners who are going to go somewhere, coast off their past titles, and basically earn money from clients who I would say really don't know the difference between an ex-McKinsey partner and a current McKinsey partner, right? And that's the reality, and I'm, and I'm speaking like this as well. I'm an ex-partner. That's why I don't run a boutique firm, because there's no way I could replicate the systems and processes that the firm had is just not possible and, and you've got to put this in perspective you know some of you may think now this can't be true well let me put it in perspective for you there are four things you have to do as a partner of a boutique firm the first one is that you have to engage clients you have to win the hearts and minds of clients by showing them that you put your their interests first now that's easy to do at bcg and mckinsey over four to five months when you've got other partners supporting you while you build the relationship the right way. When you run a boutique firm, you're under a lot of pressure to close very quickly because you need the income. You don't get the income and people are going to be unemployed, right? Now, when you're under pressure to do something for the wrong reasons, you usually do the wrong thing, so you usually cut corners. Now, people will say, no, we don't do that. We have the highest standards and so on, but people will say whatever they want to get money. The reality is if you let a system you know, grow itself without any controls, it's basically going to grow out of control. So the first thing you have to do is, win, is get clients in, right? Now, once you get clients in, you have to deliver those projects. And that takes a lot of effort as well. So a lot of time to bring in clients, a lot of time to delivering. And what normally happens in boutique firms, there's not a lot of this pressure to be skilled at everything. So what happens is some partners become the name partners. You see them very quickly. The other ones that go around, they meet clients and they bring in the work. They are the hunters. And it's some other partners and managers who have to deliver. And, you know, when you join a McKinsey and BCG, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, sure, you have relationships, but you have to be involved in delivery as well. Delivery is a very important part of what we do. We must be accountable for for delivering on the thinking we convince the client to, to expand on through a letter of purpose, right? The third thing you have to do is, and, and I would say that boutiques are pretty bad at this, is developing people. Do you have any idea how much time and effort goes into delivering someone, so into developing someone to the point whereby they are an exceptional management consultant? How much 
personal training is required, personal coaching, personal mentoring, personal handholding. It's an inordinate amount of time. It's almost crazy the amount of time you have to spend. Again, at a big firm, you can do this because the culture of the big firm is to do this. Boutique firms don't do this. You know, how many senior partners do you think in a boutique firm not just has the time to spend with new hires, but has the inclination to spend time with new hires? And I would say none because as a boutique firm, you probably mortgaged your house to pay for your spanking new offices in London or Toronto or New York. And you know, the pressure is on to deliver and bring things on. So you, you don't do this as a, as, a, as a boutique partner. You don't want to do it. You don't see the need to do it. It's your organization and you're trying to preserve it, right? There's definitely a culture clash here. But the, while those three things are definitely you know disheartening for boutiques, and I would say disheartening in the sense that they do a bad job, in the sense that they, their business model is structured so they cannot do a good job. The, the fourth thing is really the most problematic area, and that's developing new intellectual property. So you've got to meet new clients. You've got to deliver the work you promised clients and you have to develop people and now you have to develop intellectual property and this is why I have a problem with boutiques. They don't develop intellectual property. I mean sure they all say they do but they don't because it's too time consuming and the payoff is like you know too far away. So what many of them do is they take to writing these pithy little editorials and things lacking basic research in magazines, journals and whatever will actually publish them to be honest. You know they don't they're not the most selective group when it comes to putting their faces out there. They will go wherever they need to to get business. Now, you know that the only reason McKinsey and BCG and so on survive is because they produce this cutting-edge research that they take to clients. Now, what do you think is going to happen to a boutique firm that is not producing cutting-edge research? Well, basically, those partners are just recycling what they learned at McKinsey. And, and basically, whenever I go to a website and the, and the first thing the boutique is talking about is the fact that this is an ex-McKinsey partner and so on, he's obviously selling the fact that you know he's ex-McKinsey partner. That's the greatest value of the firm. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's great. But I would like to see what you've done since you've left McKinsey to, you know, introduce new ways of thinking. And a new ways of thinking is not an opinion piece. Just, just be clear about that. It's not writing an opinion piece about leadership or an opinion piece about how to companies can grow or how they can cut their costs or whatever your area of interest is, right? It's about doing real research. And that's pretty hard to do. It's pretty hard to do because even people at McKinsey can't do real research. Proper research, is, it takes time, right? There's a reason why the McKinsey Global Institute picks the top McKinsey consultants and puts them in there, because not everyone can do that work. It's a privilege to be doing research. It's a great honor. And most people don't do that, right? So those four areas are very difficult to manage, right? Now let's talk about some of the practical problems you have um, uh, when you're at these boutique firms. Now let's assume you've got Tom, who's a 55-year-old ex-BCG partner, and he's now one of the partners of the boutique firm. Now, do you think Tom is really super keen on introducing Michael, who's this up-and-coming superstar manager, to his clients? No, of course not. Tom knows that this is his retirement plan. He's not going to introduce someone else to his clients. And that's what you have at boutique firms. I'm not saying all of them, but it's a problem at most of them. The, the senior partners of the boutique firm want to lock down and hold their clients and they never introduce up-and-coming managers or senior managers in the organization to their clients. So what happens is that 
Initially, when you join, you're so happy because you know this partner is taking you underneath their wing. They're introducing you to to you know crazy kinds of analyses, and you're growing, getting more and more responsibility. But then you reach a ceiling. The ceiling is the partner doesn't want to give you access to their clients because they know that's how they have the power through their clients. So what happens with you is you've spent a lot of time at this boutique. You're great at analysis, but you never learned how to manage clients. Now let me tell you something. You can be a whiz kid at analysis, but if you don't know how to manage analysis by interpreting and managing the demand of clients, you actually don't know how to manage analysis. It's one thing to get a senior partner telling you what to do and how to do it. It's quite another thing to be dealing with a client who's got you know a thousand different ideas on what needs to happen and is pushing you in multiple directions and you don't know how to manage that. So so what you see at these boutique firms, and I, and I saw this very clearly, you know, when I came in, the senior partners had their choice people that they put on all their projects but they would never give them access to clients so some people spend six years just being a glorified senior manager manager but never being able to develop beyond that right and it becomes uh, quite an issue now now the this the fact that the senior partners of boutique firms are so locked down in managing clients means that they lock down in everything else. Let me explain what this means. What happens is that if you do some great work for a senior partner, you end up doing all your work for that senior partner. Because if there's three senior partners at a boutique firm, they don't want to fight with each other because you know when you've got three partners in this internal fighting, you basically would burn the entire business down. So they agree that, okay, Tom will work for you. Emma will work for you. And what happens is that as a young, bright, bushy-tailed associate and manager, you end up doing work for the same partners year in and year out. And even if you dislike the partner, even if you think she's a pain in the A asterisk asterisk, you can't do much about it. You can't rotate. You can't change things. You, know, you go speak to another partner and say you want, you want to change things. That partner is not going to rock the triumvirate of profit pursuit that these three partners have going. So he's basically going to say, well, you know, I agree with you, but when he talks to the other partner, he'll come up with some reason why you can't change. So this hurts the vibrancy and progression of young candidates because one of the ways you grow as a person is to be in an organization that grows. It's very difficult to be promoted in an organization that's not growing. What are you going to be promoted into? There's no growth taking place. So boutique firms suffer from this. People always say, oh, I'm working for this firm. It's ex-McKinsey, ex-BCG partner. So what? All of the things that make BCG great is not because it's BCG. It's the mechanics. It's the underlying principles. It's the way you rotate between practices. It's the culture of the partners, the way they want you to progress because they're eventually going to leave and you have to take over and inherit their client relationships, right? Think about investment cycles. That's another thing you've got to consider. Investment cycles in boutiques are very simple. There is no cycle. I'll give it to you directly. Now, some of you listening are going to say, well, my firm invests in this. My firm invests in this. Just because something is called investment doesn't mean it's a real investment, right? You know, I can tell, I can think of a thousand studies I've seen that are called strategy and they're not. The point is true investment is building an asset which by the accounting definition of an asset should generate free cash flow in the future. What most firms do, and they call it investments, is they undertake you know, fancy, glossy advertising. 
And that's just terrible because investments are important. They allow you to take risks in the future. You know, when you make an investment, you're betting on the future. And because the future is not clear, it's inherently risky. So when firms say, oh, we're making an investment in something we know is going to pay off, then it's not an investment because it's paying off in such a short cycle that it is not moving the firm ahead. And that's what boutiques do, and that's really what they can do. And a boutique is unlikely to be able to take part in a one-year, two-year investment program whereby you've committed four or five people in the firm into that and you're partnering with schools and you're committing money beyond time. You know, most boutiques are just going to invest people, if they ever do, and they're not going to put any capital behind it because it's very difficult to do that. And, And it's not a criticism of boutiques. I'm just laying out the challenges that boutiques face. And you need to understand this if you want to consider a boutique firm, right? Now, there's another issue, another practical issue when it comes to boutiques. Boutiques don't have a lot of clients. They don't have like 15 different clients that they can pick from. They're probably going to have two, three, maybe four anchor clients, and they have a few small studies that are taking place. Now, when you have a four clients that are paying for your daughter to go to a Justin Bieber concert and for your wife to go for tennis lessons and get out of the house so you can have gin on a Saturday without anyone questioning why you're not you know, gardening and cleaning the house, you want to make sure that you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And what ultimately happens is that while you may have objectivity, you cannot act on it when you have a few clients. You have to do what they want, and clients know that. They know that, hey, you know what? I'm not going to pay for you to stay at a five-star hotel. You're going to have to stay at the Holiday Inn and bring your own milk from home. And they will push you to do that. And while you may think you have a good relationship with clients, and I can assure you when the leverage changes and you've left McKinsey and you've started your own startup, it quickly erodes. And even if it doesn't erode, you're probably doing things you don't want to do to keep those relationships going. You know, you don't have the right to walk away from a client. If you walk away, you have to mortgage your house again and put in more money into the business and hope that things turn around. And most people don't want to do that. Now, I'm not saying all boutiques are like this, but I'm saying I've never seen a boutique that's not like this. Because at the end of the day, unless you have someone out there who's willing to stand up and say, look, we're going to make sacrifices, and we're going to do it for the right reasons, no one's going to follow them. So you almost need a bit of a martyr in the front there who's going to willing to lose everything for everyone else to benefit in the long term. Unfortunately, martyrs are not that common. So, you know, you don't see these in boutique firms, right? How do these firms sell themselves? Let's talk about how they sell themselves because here again you have a lot of problems, right? Most of them are not doing original research, right? What they are selling is the fact that they have a partner from BCG, a partner from Bain, or a partner from McKinsey who's done all these things and basically you are going to get them a lot cheaper because they don't have the whole weight of McKinsey. That's what they're selling. Forget about all these things about value and how focused they are and how focused on client delivery. People say whatever they want on their websites and in their annual reports because it sounds wonderful and you know no one wants to hear the truth. The reality is it's a cost arrangement. They can compete against McKinsey because they are cheaper than McKinsey. Right? I mean, like, why in the world would you go and buy a Toyota when you could afford a Ferrari? You wouldn't, right? So basically, these guys get the kit version of the Ferrari, which they are, and they'll say, okay, we're now going to charge you the kit price of a Ferrari. It looks like a Ferrari. It acts like a Ferrari. It sounds like a Ferrari. But wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you and I both know it's not a Ferrari, right? And, you know, it's maybe a harsh way of saying it, but it's the reality. And that's, you know, basic economics. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a buyer's market, you know. There's so many, McKinsey is firing so many people. BCG is firing so, so many people. All these people have to do whatever they can to to survive, right? 
they will do whatever they can to survive. And you know, I remember speaking down, speaking with. Um, um, I was in Chile recently, and I was talking to these two very famous brothers from McKinsey. Well, I suppose they're famous in Chile, right? If you've never been to Chile, you would probably never heard of them. And they started a boutique firm, and they were telling me about how their prices are higher than McKinsey's and so on. I mean, obviously, I was quite impressed. When someone says their prices are higher than McKinsey or BCG, I, I get interested because people can tell you whatever they want. But if you can actually get a client to pay more than they will pay the big firms, and that's interesting. That's like your share price. It's a reflection of your true value. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. And, you know, maybe we should consider actually acquiring these people. They're obviously doing something right, so let's open their books. So we open their books, and yeah, they charge more than McKinsey, but you have to look at the way they charge McKinsey. So what these people do is they officially bill for five hours a day, but they end up doing 12 to 18 hours of work. So their effective rate is ridiculously low. And I've seen that with so many different ex-consultants. They all tell you about how much money they're charging. But if you actually work out effective rates and so on, it's nothing. They're basically giving their time away for free, right? But you know, that's the thing with human ego. You have to brag to feel good about yourself, but the reality is quite different. So, you know, when people say these things, you have to be very careful about it. I'm not saying all boutiques say these things, but the reality is that boutiques have low cost structures. They invest very little in their business, and that's their model. There's nothing wrong with that, right? You know, you don't go to McDonald's looking for a, you know, Gordon Ramsay $500 hamburger that you'd find in his Las Vegas restaurant. No. You you know what you're buying into, so you cannot complain when you don't get the Gordon Ramsay signature burger. It's the same thing here, right? Now let's just talk about um, you know some some issues around growth here because they are also important. Now what happens is boutiques are loath to grow. Why are they loath to grow? Because well, hiring someone and paying them whatever the salary is in anywhere from hundred thousand dollars to up to $200,000 for probably a partner at the boutique is a lot of money for a boutique. It could be, you know, it could be in a bad year, it could be most of their the revenue, maybe 20% of their revenue. In a good year, it could be 5% of their revenue. So what happens with the boutique is that when it's growing rapidly, it doesn't hire people. It would, it, they would rather, I don't know, eat their children than hire people. It, it would take an act of God Zeus would have to come down on his carriage to convince him to hire people. So what happens is that a boutique will work the junior people as hard as they can. Um, they will then bring in contractors. And of course, they'll have like a thousand reasons why contractors are superior to having real consultants all about flexibility, you know, bringing in real skills, blah, 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 blah. And finally, only if they have to, they will hire someone. But... On a, on, a, on, a, on a bus cycle, they will also be unwilling to let people go. And you have to understand this now. This is the thing that, that you don't understand. So people always say, oh, a boutique will be easier to let you go. No, a boutique will be much more apprehensive to let you go. What a boutique does is that they keep this very low manpower structure. So when times are good, they don't want to increase their overhead and fixed cost base. So they don't hire anyone and you end up being ragged. When when times are, are weak, they don't want to release you because the cost of training you and the cost of developing you is so high that they don't want to do it again. So what normally happens with these boutique firms is that you get this really poor culture developing whereby some consultants are not being promoted because they're not doing well, but the boutique wants to keep them at this low level 
So they don't pay them a lot, they don't promote them, they maybe invent some new titles to make it look like they're being promoted. But the reality is this person's going nowhere, but the boutique doesn't want to tell them that. They'll basically not want to pay them more, but try to keep them. On the flip side, they also don't want to promote people, as I mentioned earlier, because they don't want to promote them and give them access to clients. So what a lot of the boutiques do is they'll invent these titles like executives and implementation partner, blah, 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 because just a few of the partners are trying to hold on to clients because that's where the money is, right? Now, in a, in a bust market whereby you're someone who's not doing well, they don't want to fire you, it's a horrible experience. And I remember sitting down with some of the you know, analysts and associates in the, in the boutique firm I ran, and you can see their careers are going nowhere. They should be released. They're being paid nothing. They're being paid pretty pathetically, in my opinion. But the firm doesn't want to release them because the cost of replacing them is more than what they're paying them per year. So they've decided to just keep them and wreck their careers, right? And it's not right to do that. Again, not all boutiques are doing this, but the economics of a boutique lends itself to this. Now, on the upside, you know, you get these guys with fancy titles who have never met a client in their life and don't know if they should stay at their shoes or look a client in the eye. They don't even know what to do in front of a client. Right? It's actually a big shock for them when they engage clients. Now, I'm not saying they're not engaging any clients, but they're not engaging the decision makers. They're only involved in the implementation side. And obviously, you know, that, that becomes a bit of an issue. Now, let's just talk about something about culture and team dynamics here. Every boutique website tells you about, oh, it's so amazing to work with a small team, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know everyone, you have access to everyone. Let me tell you what is a small team. A small team is a family. And let me tell you, most families do not get along. I remember meeting the head of Valentino, the, the fashion design house once, and he was telling me that, you know, Michael, I'm so happy that I retired. I can now ride my bicycle, not bicycles, riding a motorbike through the mountains of northern Africa. Because he said there's one thing worse than working with your family, and that's working with your mother-in-law. And there's one thing worse than working with your mother-in-law, and that's working with your mother. And boutiques are exactly like that. They mirror all of the dynamics of a family because there's no escape valve. You, you piss off someone, who do you go? Where do you work with? You can't go anywhere else. You have to see this person the next day. And it becomes inherently difficult for you to, to ignore the dynamics of a dysfunctional family. And that's basically what you have, right? Now, one final point I want to make here is that boutiques are inherently resistant to change. And I remember when I came in and I was sitting down with all these partners and, you know, the f first thing they all tell me is there's nothing broken. Well, of course, there's nothing broken. That's where you spent couple of hundred thousand dollars to hire me because nothing's broken. So if there's nothing broken, why in the world are we unable to, you know, pay our bills? Why in the world are we unable to get a meeting with the CEO of BHP Bulletin? Why in the world are we unable to get a meeting with the CEO of Gazprom? Why in the world is everyone except just the five of you or eight of you telling me that, you know, this um this business is not working? Why is everyone so unhappy? So clearly there's something broken. But the thing is that Rationality does not prevail here. Yeah. Boutiques, as I mentioned earlier, is not to be derogative, are retirement homes for ex-partners. When someone starts a boutique consulting firm, they're basically retiring. And the reality is that every ex-McKinsey, ex-BCG person, whether it's partner, analyst, and so on, thinks they can run a consulting firm. They think this is so easy, I can do it now. I can think of very few consulting firms that have succeeded in consulting. Sure, they all tell you they're doing consulting, but they're running other things on their side to, to pay the bills. Consulting is a difficult industry. You have to produce leading-edge thinking. You have to have the right value system, which, forget about leading-edge thinking, having the right value system is practically impossible. 
you then have to develop people to replace you. you so you're basically getting yourself fired in the long term. You have to deliver what you've promised clients. And you have to build up people. That's impossible to do. I mean, if for one person to choose to do that, you have to basically be a sadomasochist. Right? You have to want to punish yourself. I remember when I was doing that, it was basically no breaks for every weekend. Every weekend for many years, I would be working. And that's what is required. Now, to do that year in and year out is pretty difficult. And you have to be only committed to the cause to do it. And the reality is most people who are doing this are basically preparing a nest egg for retirement. So the principle of having a nest egg for retirement means you control the business. And you're never going to relinquish control, which means the principle of grooming people to take over into management positions doesn't happen. And therein you have the problem with boutiques. Their entire operating model doesn't lend itself to running it, running themselves the way a consulting firm should be run, whereby you know successive levels of leadership is replaced and churned out with new people who will then run the business and groom in more people. And that's ultimately the problem with boutiques. So when you're thinking about taking over, you know, work, taking over your um, uh, recruitment process and, and moving in a whole new direction, I would think very carefully about boutiques. I don't encourage people to go to management consulting to learn boutiques because while you may end up working for this wonderful, glorious McKinsey partner, he's no longer a McKinsey partner. Secondly, the business model doesn't lend itself to what you want to achieve. And thirdly, you know, I would take the pain and go to a firm that is, you know, has a reputation for, for producing stars. Right? If a firm cannot produce a star, how in the world can it convert you into a star? And that's what boutiques do. They don't produce stars, they hire stars. Now, you ask yourself this, if you are a star, why do you want to work in a boutique? There's no rational logic for going to a boutique if you want to learn about management consulting. And now, for a lot of people at boutique firms may disagree with, with me about this, but it's hard to disagree if you've never worked at McKinsey or BCG. And if you have worked at McKinsey or BCG, you're probably going to have subjective opinions. That's fine. You are welcome to disagree, but you know, do not make one data point or two data points a trend for the entire industry. There are always exceptions to the rule. But the reality is that there is no justifiable means for having a mini-me version of McKinsey and BCG. I do believe there should be competition in the industry, but those are scaled firms like Booz and so on, not smaller firms. There are time and place for them, but not serving the clients McKinsey and BCG serves. And I think it's actually a little bit misleading to consultants when they create the impression that they're doing that, because they're not. So, you know, when you're preparing for your recruitment this year, I would think really carefully about whether or not you want to work at a boutique. It ain't fun at the end of the day for anyone, the client, you, and certainly not the managing partner who's been brought in to clean up things.